All right, we are, as uh, David said earlier, we're continuing the Lord's Prayer this morning and looking specifically at this fifth petition. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors in verse 12. And then the comments Jesus adds there at the end in verses 14 and 15. So let's begin by reading the whole prayer again. And this time I'll actually take us all the way through verse 15. All right, now hear the words of the one true and living God. Jesus instructs his disciples to pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. First, I want to address something some of you may be thinking, rightly so. If it says debts and debtors, why do we say trespasses when when we pray it together? Short answer, because it's biblically accurate, and it just sounds better. You know, when we say it aloud together, it seems to roll off the tongue a little nicer, and there's nothing wrong with that unless it changes the meaning, and it doesn't. You can look down verses 14, 15 there that we just read, where Jesus expounds on this petition, and he uses the word trespass there, and he's he's referring back to what we just prayed. So the idea is the same. We've sinned against God, and it's plural, right? If, If it were just one sin... If it were only one trespass or one debt we owed, we'd still be in big trouble. I mean, an eternal death sentence for each one. But we've got stacks of them. Debts, trespasses, sins. We have transgressed the law of God. So it doesn't matter what what you put there. We're getting at the same idea. We have transgressed the law of God, just stepped all over it. We need to ask for forgiveness. We need forgiveness. And knowing we have forgiveness inclines us to be forgiving. So that's the main idea of of the sermon this morning, okay? The forgiven are forgiving. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Receiving forgiveness requires offering forgiveness, So I've got two points for you this morning that come right out of that main idea and right out of our text this morning. You need forgiveness, and you need to forgive. Pretty simple. I want us to look at two passages this morning that will help illustrate these two points. Uh, The first is from Joshua 7, and I'll do a lot of um, sort of uh, summarizing there. We won't read the whole thing. And then the second is from Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus gives a parable illustrating this very teaching about forgiving others. So first, first point, you need forgiveness. Seems obvious, but we have to be convinced of that if we're going to be humble enough to easily forgive others. If we're going to follow through with this forgiving others business, we have to first realize how heavy the consequences are for sinning against God. Because only then will we understand the depth of the forgiveness that we've received. Then, 
forgiving others gets easier. You know, it comes into focus how freely we ought to offer forgiveness because we know how much we've been forgiven. So let's start there and turn to Joshua 7 to get a picture of this, okay? The dire consequences of sin. God's attitude towards sin and how forgiveness comes. So we're going to go to Joshua chapter 7. You can go ahead and turn there just to kind of bring us up to speed a little bit. Israel loses a battle. And they're, they're crushed. They're surprised, too, because they, they can't figure it out. Because the Lord has always fought for them. He's given them victory time and time again, just as he has promised. Everyone knows the story about the Battle of Jericho, right? We've heard that story. You know, God tells, uh, God, God tells his people to march around the city seven times, blowing trumpets for seven days straight. They're not supposed to make any other sound except for the blowing of the trumpets. And then after they march around on the seventh time, on the seventh day, they shout, and the walls literally fall down. My Old Testament professor uh, in, in seminary, one of them, he was an archaeologist, and he actually worked on the Jericho site. And, and he said what was interesting is the, the walls didn't appear to have been beaten down from the outside in, but they actually fell from the inside out. God fought for Israel, and he made it very clear to them and to all the nations around them that he, Yahweh, was the one delivering Israel's enemies into their hands over and over again. Joshua commanded his people on that seventh day after their seventh lap, he says, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and everything in it is devoted to the Lord for destruction. Don't take anything out of the city. It is, it, is, it is set apart for destruction to the Lord. And what you do when you sack a city is you plunder it for all its goodies, right? But God said, no, not this time. It's mine. Don't touch and the archaeological site actually showed that everything had been left. There were jars that were preserved with charred grain inside, which indicated that everything had been left in the city and burned in it. God said, don't take anything. It's all devoted for destruction. And they did. Most of them anyway. There's this guy, Aachen, who just couldn't, couldn't resist. Just like Eve in the garden, he saw what was forbidden it looked good, and he took it. And he didn't think anyone would ever know. Isn't that what we do when we sin? No one will ever know. But God knows. He knew Aachen's sin, and your sin will find you out. This has a way of doing that. Aachen's sin found him out. Israel lost the next battle. Because of his sin. The Lord was not with them in battle this time, and they lost. So not only did God know Achan had sinned when no one else did, his sin affected everyone he was with. It affected his, his church. It affected his entire family. All right, so with that little bit of background, let's, let's read real quick. Joshua chapter 7, beginning at verse 10, okay? 
The Lord said to Joshua, this is after the defeat, Joshua's obviously uh, uh, just in pain and, and just distraught. God says, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And then he goes on to list how, how they're supposed to come out. E each group of people, each tribe, and then each family, each head of family is supposed to become and, and, and presented to Joshua. And then uh, let's pick up down here. Verse 19, then Joshua said to Achan, it's become apparent now as we've kind of gone through everybody, the Achan's the guy. And then Joshua says to, to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent. Behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned him with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. That's rough stuff. Here's what you learn from that. Sin is serious, isn't it? You've heard me say it before. Sins aren't oopsie-daisies. God is angry with sin. Sin separates you from God. He can't be present with sin. He withdrew from Israel because of Achan's sin and didn't fight for them. God's anger burns against sin. Sin is serious and sin has to be dealt with. God doesn't just let it slide you see there in verse 26, then the Lord turned from his burning anger after the sin was dealt with. Achan was dragged out of the camp and stoned so that Israel's sin could be removed from them. Sin is serious. 
And here's the second thing you learn from that, and don't miss it anytime you read Joshua chapter 7. Jesus, who only ever did exactly as God commanded and never touched anything that was forbidden, was dragged out of that camp and stoned for you. God does not simply forgive sin, he punishes it. That's the only way pardon comes. That's the only way your sins are forgiven and you, you and your family are not devoted to destruction. By his wounds, remember, you were healed. Isaiah 53, 1 Peter chapter 2. Forgiveness comes after God's wrath is satisfied and sin is removed. Sin is serious and we need forgiveness. That forgiveness only comes to us because someone else took our punishment. If we're going to talk about asking for forgiveness and forgiving others, we've got to start there and be reminded of that. The seriousness of sin and our desperate need for forgiveness and a reminder of the only way that forgiveness comes. Now that said, if that's the only way forgiveness comes and we have it already in Christ, why should a Christian ask God for forgiveness like we do in this prayer? Some people say we don't need to ask God for forgiveness anymore because all of our sins, past, present, and future, have, have been forgiven in Christ. He's removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. He remembers our sin no more. All of that is 100% true. We are justified once. We're declared righteous by God because he has dealt with all of our sins in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of them. No question about that. But we still sin, don't we? And First John says, if any man says he is without sin, he's a liar. Even though we are justified by faith in Christ alone, we all know we still sin. So when we do, when we know we have sinned, what do we do? Just say, put it on my tab, God. Charge it to the game. No. We come to him confessing our sin and asking for forgiveness. And by faith, we can be assured we have it. We get to ask for forgiveness knowing God, being our loving heavenly father, will not withhold it from us. So that's why we, as Christians, are instructed by Jesus himself to ask for forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer. You know, this, this petition in the prayer, uh, you know, it's not about unbelievers coming to God for the first time in order to be cleansed by him. It's, this petition is like Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Remember in John 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and Peter says, not just not just my feet, Lord, but my head, my hands, all of me. And Jesus tells him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. We have already been bathed. We are completely clean in Christ. But as we live out our days here walking through a sin-stained world, our feet get dirty. And we keep coming back to have them cleaned up. 
We know we've been forgiven completely, but we ask for forgiveness for our particular sins. And by God's grace, the Holy Spirit convicts us of what those particular sins are and convinces us that we need to go to God and urges us to confess them and to ask for forgiveness, and we have it. I mentioned 1 John a minute ago, which gives us a picture of this, the forgiven asking for forgiveness. John tells us to confess our sins and then assures us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's, he's not talking to unbelievers here. His letter was to Christians. So he's talking to believers there, and Jesus is talking to believers here in this petition. He's talking to those who already have the right to call God our Father. And he instructs us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So yes, even we as Christians continue to ask for forgiveness for our sins, even though we know God has forgiven us completely in Christ. And we do it together corporately, too, at the beginning of service each Sunday, don't we? Reminding ourselves we have sinned against God and are in need of forgiveness. You know, a good foot washing before we come into his presence to worship him. Knock off the, the grime that we've picked up over the week. And then aren't we assured from God's word of his pardon in Christ? Right on the heels of that. Isn't that a sweet weekly reminder? Doesn't that cross look a little bit bigger when we start worship out that way? You know, it isn't, isn't the way up down in God's economy? Aren't the, the first last and the last first? That blessed humbling when we confess our sin together and own the words, own what it is that we confess, it situates us in a posture of humility and it reminds us of the grace we have received from our Father who loved us before we loved him. We love because he first loved us. It's a great way to start out. And it's not just a formality in our liturgy, you know? It's, we don't do it to, to be fancy or to be high church. We do it because we need it. And I'll just say, if you think that part of the service is, is sort of a downer where we're just wallowing in our sin every week and beating ourselves up, it's because you still are too focused on God as judge. If you only ever think of God as judge and not as your father who pinned your judgment on his son, your Christian walk will only ever seem like a sentence. Don't let that happen. If you only ever think of approaching God in terms of guilt and innocence, you'll be exhausted all the time trying to figure out how to stay in his good graces. Christian, you stay in his good graces by Christ alone. So when we're confessing our sin together in worship and when we pray this fifth petition in the Lord's Prayer, we're not focused on legal guilt, see? We're not focused on legal guilt. We're not focused on justification. We confess our sin together, assuming our legal guilt has been dealt with already at the cross. And we are once and for all justified and declared righteous by God. We're not concerned with legal guilt when we confess our sins. We, we're concerned with the fact that we've displeased our Father who despite our many sins still loves us because he's faithful even when we're not. 
We're acknowledging that together as a family because my sin affects you, your sin affects me. And so we're coming together at that time at the beginning of the service with one voice to ask for forgiveness. You know, we, we, we want to do what is pleasing to our Father. We don't want to continue doing things that we know are displeasing to our Father. We confess together because we're concerned, not with being accepted by God, but because we're sensitive to the fact that we have thought, said, and done things that, uh, that are not pleasing to him. We come confessing not to get in relationship with God, but because we are already in relationship with God, and that relationship matters to us. That's what we're doing. You know, this isn't a terribly hard concept. People trip up on this. It's not hard, though. My children understand there's nothing they could do that would make me love them less or that would make them not my sons. They're not going to get booted out of the family for disobedience, but at the same time, we're not going to pretend like their disobedience is okay, like it's no big deal. Their sonship, me being their father and them being my sons, it's not conditioned upon anything. It's just a matter of fact, right? But because they are my sons, they should concern themselves with doing right in my eyes, and when they don't, their consciences should be sensitive to that and they should come and ask me for forgiveness. They don't come to be made a son again, see? They come because they know they are my sons and they know that I love them. And they know that because I love them, they're ashamed when they have disappointed me. It's the same way here. That's why we confess our sins to our Father. Our sins don't separate us from God if we've been purchased by Christ's blood. We don't come with our confessions to get back in the family. We come because we are in the family. And being in right fellowship within the family matters to us. We're sensitive to displeasing our Father. You know, many of you, like me, were, weren't saved until adulthood. And you used, to, you used to hide from God. Remember that? You know, worried about doing everything behind his back. You know, like Aachen, no one will ever know, right? You lived your life in the shadows, hiding from... You don't have to hide anymore. You have a father you can come to, you can confess, you can name your sins and say, I, I know I've done what has displeased you. And you can know that he, he knows you, loves you, understands you, wants you to trust in him completely with all of those things. To have that open relationship, to be able to share that, to be that vulnerable, to be that broken. And then to know that you can walk away with your face lifted and your heart light. He wants you to live out in the light and not keep running back into the darkness. Part of experiencing the joy of your salvation is this relationship you have where you can come to God daily asking for cleansing and for forgiveness. Listen carefully. Not doing that will rob you of the joy you are meant to experience. You can't keep bottling up the guilt. It needs a release. The fuel the Christian runs on is forgiveness. And we come to God knowing we will receive it. 
How can we be so sure? Because God says so. He promises, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God promises, and he doesn't break promises. That's how you can know. You know it's not a feeling. It's no use saying, well, I confess my sin to God, but I just don't feel forgiven. Well, then pray, God, help my unbelief. Just believe what God says is true. If he says you're forgiven, you are. Don't try to carry that burden of shame anymore. It doesn't belong to you. Jesus bore it in his body on the cross. That's how you can know there is forgiveness for you. That's how you can be made whole again. And when you know you've done something that grieves God, you know that you can be assured of forgiveness. That's the fuel you need to keep going to rejoice in your salvation. Forgiveness is the fuel the Christian runs on. All right, so that's point number one. We need forgiveness. We, we need to know it. We need to know what it cost. And we need to be reminded we still sin and have a Father in heaven who wants us to come to him confessing our sins so that we can be assured of his grace working in our lives. Second point, you need to forgive. You need to forgive others. All right, we're flipping a few pages to uh, Matthew chapter 18, looking at a parable that Jesus uses to illustrate this very point that he's making in verses 14 and 15 uh, of chapter 6. So let's go to Matthew chapter 18. And uh, we're going to look at beginning at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and asking him, he, and seizing him rather, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What we learn from this parable and from Jesus' comments on this petition in the Lord's Prayer about forgiving others, is, is not that forgiveness from God is conditioned upon our forgiveness of others. Don't, 
Don't get that twisted, okay? Instead, what we learn is that the proof we have been forgiven by God is that we forgive others. All right, so there's our main idea again, right? The forgiven are forgiving. Forgiven people are forgiving people. If you know you didn't deserve to be forgiven by God for your sins, and there's no way you would have ever swallowed your pride and asked him for forgiveness had he not given you a new heart, how in the world can you withhold forgiveness from someone else? Someone who has been blood-bought forgives easily. This is going to sound extreme, but I mean it. If you know you simply refuse to forgive someone, whatever it is that they did to you, if it's unforgivable in your eyes, you should ask yourself if you've ever received the forgiveness God offers you through his son. The forgiven are forgiving. Forgiven people are forgiving people. If you don't forgive, you are not forgiven. Isn't that what Jesus just said? Verse 15? I'm not making that up. If your heart has truly been broken over your own sin and you have received forgiveness that you know you didn't deserve, how can you require anyone else to deserve your forgiveness? And who do you think you are? I would not be doing anyone any favors by not telling you that is a sin that needs to be repented of. And maybe it's, it's good that we've landed on this petition on the first day of a new year. You know, people thinking about fresh starts and all that. And I don't know who this is for, but maybe forgiving that person is where you need to start this year. Maybe forgiving that person, letting them off your hook, not waiting anymore for them to deserve it or to ask for it. Maybe that's where you need to start. I won't go into the whole story, y'all, but I had a hard lesson in this about six years ago. I was bitter. I got burned bad by someone close to me, and it ate me up for over a year. It kind of came in stages. The, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my bitterness and I knew I needed to forgive the person, but I didn't want to. And then I wanted to, but he was going to have to ask for it. I was ready to forgive him, but he had to make the first move. And I realized, that's never going to happen. So I just stewed in my own juices over it, beat myself up over it, until God softened my heart. You know, the way he softens my heart he beats it with a hammer like a meat tenderizer, right? They softened my heart, and then I realized all that mattered is who I am. I was waiting for him to be someone or something. He just isn't. Who I am is a wretched sinner saved by grace. And that grace is something I would have never asked for. I'd have never asked for it. The circumstances don't matter. The hurt hurts, but the hurt doesn't matter. 
The cross is what matters. If it took the cross for you to be forgiven, you can look at that person who wronged you and forgive them. You can. It may take time. It may take a lot of time on your knees. It may take some tears, some difficult conversations. But you can, you can forgive that person. The forgiven are forgiving because we know what we cost. Whenever we look at ourselves before God and realize how much we have been forgiven and what it took to forgive us, it doesn't take much for us to forgive someone else. If we're keeping our eyes on the right thing, because whatever, whatever someone did to you is nothing, I mean, be honest, is nothing compared to your sin against a holy God, is it? If you're like me, you're probably looking for an out clause, right? Some, some sort of exception to the rule, because there always is one. But there just isn't here. There's not one. If you are forgiven, you must forgive. That doesn't mean there aren't boundaries, okay? That doesn't mean you have to trust the person completely again or allow yourself to be wounded by them. It doesn't mean you have to be best buddies with them. You don't have to send them a Christmas card next year. You don't have to invite them over to your kid's birthday party. But you must forgive them. You must release them from the debt they owe you. Whether or not they ever know you released them or not. We pray this petition asking to be forgiven because we know that even though we have been forgiven, we still need to be. We go on sinning. Every day, we need our feet washed. We need to be cleaned up. And we pray we would forgive those who have sinned against us because we recognize to, much, to, to those whom much has been given, much is required, right? And, and those who are forgiven much love much. Well, haven't we been given much? Haven't we been forgiven much? Forgiven people are forgiving people. That's what this kingdom Jesus keeps talking about looks like. Forgiven people, forgiving people. May that be true of all Christians everywhere in the church generally, but let's certainly pray that would be true of us at King's Church. Knowing we have received forgiveness that we did not deserve and being quick to offer forgiveness when it's needed, even when it's not deserved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> Lord God, thank you as we continue to move through the Lord's Prayer for reminding us of the access we have to you that we can call you our Father. Lord, that because of the blood of your Son, we are sons and daughters, that we have complete forgiveness, that we have relationship with you where we can come to you, vulnerable, broken, you will love us. You're there to comfort us and assure us, to correct us and to train us, to teach us. Lord, I pray that we would avail ourselves to it and that we would be quick to recognize sin in our lives and to come confessing it to you and asking for forgiveness and being assured that we have it. In Jesus' name, amen.